Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Death and the Resurrection of Jesus, with a message entitled, The Condemnation of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 27, 11 to 23, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. God hates it. When in a court of law, the wicked are exonerated of crimes they have done. God also hates it when the innocent are falsely condemned and made to pay for crimes they did not commit. The reason for this is that God is a God of justice. You know, when I was a boy growing up in the Canadian school system in grade five, we were all given a New Testament which included Psalms and Proverbs. I mean, that gift came from the government of our country. Printed in the opening page was a quotation from Proverbs 14.34. It was placed right beside a picture of the Canadian flag, and it said, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I know that modern-day Canadians have difficulty in imagining a country that once encouraged people to read their Bible, but it was so. And in the case of Jesus, the abandonment of righteousness and the embrace of sin was pronounced. I mean, after all, the people who did this had the law and the prophets. Theirs were the covenants, the means of worship given by God. Theirs also were the promises. Theirs were the patriarchs upon which everything rested. They were the people whose ancestors had stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. And they were the only nation on earth that had heard God audibly speak his laws to them. What a heritage they had. And yet the leaders of this nation inspired the people of this nation to justify the wicked Barabbas and to condemn the righteous Jesus. I mean, how is it possible to do this? What are the steps that led them to do these things? And from that, we might ask ourselves, is it possible for people to do the same today? Now, before we deal with Matthew's description of Jesus before Pilate, from the other four Gospels, let's get a comprehensive picture of what has transpired. We know that Pilate was trying very hard to simply get rid of this case. He did not want any part of the matter. And in the end, he would fail. Rather than doing the right thing, he wanted to get rid of the matter. You know, from the four accounts, we get a clear picture of his motivation. Pilate is trying hard just to survive and not live for what's right. He is, as so many are in this world, a politician who was trying to keep his position. If there were stirrings within him that he should have used his position to further the cause of righteousness, and indeed, it appears he did have those stirrings. Yet his desire to keep his position is much greater than his desire to do the right thing. Did you know the pilots of this world have not gone away? They're still among us. Men and women who come to power and then don't seem to use the power they have to bless people and to honor God. Rather, they use the power they have so that they might not lose power. Power, rather than what good power can do, becomes the goal. Jesus was condemned because of that spirit. From the other three gospel accounts, let's remember what happened. At first, Pilate tried to have Jesus sent back to the Sanhedrin so that they might deal with him. He didn't want the fallout from this matter. Next, when the Sanhedrin refused because they couldn't seek the death penalty, Pilate was then forced to hear the charges. And here we see the duplicity of the Sanhedrin. 
They had found Jesus worthy of death because of a charge of blasphemy against God. But they know that Pilate has no interest in that, and so they decide to shade the truth and lie in order to get what they want. Here's another important lesson in the condemnation of Jesus. It was accomplished through lies. First, they claim that Jesus perverts the nation. Second, they claim that he forbids the paying of taxes to Caesar. And then third, he claims to be a king. That means, of course, that he's politically dangerous. You know, please understand that Pilate isn't naive. He knows full well that none of the religious leaders of Israel care one whit if a leader should rise and throw out the Romans. I mean, they'd all clap at that idea. This idea that these men are so committed to Rome so that they would make sure that Roman power was protected, I mean, that was laughable. Pilate knew that. Pilate knows the real reason for this is somewhere else. But instead of exposing the true motives, he's determined to pass this matter off. You know, at first he tries to pass it off to Herod Antipas, and that doesn't work. But let's get back to Matthew's description of this matter. As we've seen in many cases, Matthew gives us a very abbreviated description of the events, and he does so here. But we have to imagine that at this point in Matthew's description, Pilate has been standing at the entrance of the Antonio Fortress. The Jewish leaders refuse to go in, for they will be rendered unclean at the Passover if they go in. I mean, the entire scene is rich with irony. But the Jews are making a case for the death penalty. So let's read Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. Pilate is interested in getting at the heart of the matter. He doubts the charge, especially because he doubts the religious leaders would have cared about that kind of a charge. And so he questions Jesus, using a question that is meant to settle the matter and just take it off his plate. Standing in the porch over the pavement in front of him, he asks Jesus, The answer is an answer that all the Roman and Greek world would have understood. To say, you have said so, well, that's a Greek expression. It's meant to deflect the question back to the person who asks it. That is, you didn't hear that from me, but I'm hearing that from you. Or to put it another way, Jesus says, that's what you're saying, not what I'm saying. I think Pilate asked the question not because under close questioning he'd think he'd be able to get the truth out of Jesus. He's asking it to end this case as quickly as he can. But the Jewish religious leaders saw that and they were prepared. So let's read Matthew 27, 12 to 14. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now this silence of Jesus has already happened once before. If you go back to Matthew 26, 62, when Jesus was before the Sanhedrin, he also then did not say a word in response to all the false witnesses that were testifying against him. But now this takes place before Pilate. Jesus again remains silent, and Pilate really is quite surprised. I mean, shouldn't this man be protesting? But he's doing none of that. See, I can't help but think that, that Pilate must have seen the contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. See, the religious leaders are loud and boisterous. They're ready for action. You know, they want to prosecute Jesus to death. And Jesus being accused of treason against the empire, well, he's quiet, he's serene. You know, how's Pilate to believe that such a quiet man is leading a rebellion and that he's inflaming people against Rome and on the verge of leading an armed rebellion? There's no evidence that such a rebellion exists anywhere. 
And furthermore, the man standing before him does not seem inflamed with rebellion. And Pilate by this time is a very clear picture of what's happening. We have to believe that he was more than aware of Jesus' triumphal ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And from Sunday to this Friday, nothing has happened that would lead him to believe that a rebellion was being fomented. If there was any rebellion at all, well, it was between Jesus and the religious leaders, and that was it. And so by this time, we have to believe that Pilate has already sent Jesus to Herod. Herod has sent him back. And so what's Pilate to do? I know the answer is that he should do what is right. Do the right thing. That's what you should do. Pilate's a political animal. He's all too aware of certain realities. Tiberius, the then emperor of Rome, was a very suspicious man. And he would most likely not ignore the charge coming from Jerusalem that Pilate had ignored a threat to the empire. So in order to navigate the charge from the Jewish leadership that a false king had arisen to challenge Roman power, Pilate could have sent envoys to Rome to explain the entire thing. I mean, doing the right thing might mean that Pilate would then have to put up with considerable difficulties. Please understand that the ultimate injustice that was ever done was the condemnation of Jesus, and it was done because one man who could have stopped all of this was at that very moment wondering about the personal cost to himself should he do the right thing. Pilate was concerned with self-preservation, not with righteousness. Oh, my dear listener, I don't need to tell you how important this lesson is to all of us. If you've sinned, if you've done wrong, or if you've brought harm to someone, all because you were trying to protect yourself and your goals in life, you're a man or a woman just like Pilate. You need to see that in yourself. You would have condemned the Son of God so that your position of favor, your position of power would not be lost. Most human beings are exactly like Pilate. The condemnation of Jesus is then a mirror that's held up to ourselves. It shows us who we are. You know, even though Pilate would not have known Proverbs 17, 15, you know, the passage about condemning the innocent and exonerating the righteous, Pilate was going to challenge all Israel with a moral dilemma. But it will be theirs, not his, he thinks. He will pass off the burden of proof to them. Jesus has entrusted his followers with the sacred mission to make disciples of all nations. Together we share this duty to shepherd the millions of lost souls to the saving truths found in God's word. But in order to effectively disciple hearts into a dynamic relationship with the Lord, we need to be well equipped to evangelize the unsaved. It's not just about knowing how to share our faith, but being ready to share it when the opportunity comes. This is why Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to offer a booklet called Before You Share Your Faith by Matt Smethurst. This resource guides us through five crucial elements that will give us the tools to be evangelism ready. So request your free copy today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. I'm reading Matthew 27, 15 to 17. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. 
So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, Matthew tells us that a custom had developed, and we don't know a great deal about that custom today, but the more we think about it, the very nature of this custom, at least from a Roman perspective, well, it was brilliant. So this was the custom. Since Passover was a time of deliverance from slavery, rather than having the Jewish population talk and long for deliverance from Rome, why not have them giving deliverance to someone who had sinned? Amnesty or freedom for a condemned criminal? Let Israel celebrate such an act of deliverance every Passover. It was Rome's way of saying, we too are participating in celebration of Passover with you. And so you have to imagine that Pilate is now imagining the way out of his dilemma. See, I have no doubt that when he placed Barabbas next to Jesus, that he fully expected the people to choose Jesus. And once that occurred, he will have succeeded in playing the people against the religious leaders. It will be his coup. He's outsmarted them. And he will leave it to them to try to rectify the mess that he leaves them with. You know, I I say it would have been a coup because Pilate and the religious leaders did not even like each other. And in one action, he will have reduced their power base among the people. I am sure he intended never to allow them to forget what he had done. I think that verse 18 probably is the key reason for Pilate's confidence. See, that verse says, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. It was worthwhile here to examine that word envy. You know, one Bible teacher, I think, rightly argues that the best definition of envy is the displeasure aroused by seeing someone else having what you do not want them to have. Let me say it again and let it sink in. Envy is the displeasure that's aroused when we see someone have something that we desperately don't want them to have. Now, I think that's true, but I, I think I can add something to that. Not only do we desperately not want them to have that thing, but we wish that instead of them having it, we had it. So think about it. Someone's popular. Someone's wealthy. Someone succeeds. You know, in each case, we didn't want them to be either popular, wealthy, or successful. But in each case, we thought we were far more worthy than they to have that thing. So let's apply it to Jesus. Look, Pilate had been in Israel long enough to understand the situation. There were a great many people who thought that the chief priests and the leading elders were corrupt. They had made deals with the Romans. They weren't the kind of shepherds that anyone trusted. And then along comes Jesus. None of the religious leaders of Israel had ever ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey to the cries of the admiration of the masses. And they, the religious leaders, although they were hard-pressed to admit it, would love to have been the object of such admiration. They'd never been that. And furthermore, They'd already deemed Jesus as a problem, and the very thing they wanted so badly, popularity, he seemed to get with ease. See, Pilate knew not only this, but he assumed that's why Jesus was there, envy producing hatred, and he thought what would happen next would drive these guys insane. So why didn't it happen? Well, it didn't happen because after he announced that he had given the people a choice, that then suddenly... He was unable to go directly to the people. He was sidetracked by his wife, who, it turns out, had something very important to say. And while that was happening, I have to assume the elders of Israel went to work. We'll get back to that in a second. But let's find out what Pilate's wife had to say. Matthew 27, 19 to 20. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. 
Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So, the juxtaposition of verses 19 to 20 explains the delay. Let's look at Pilate's wife. She sends word to Pilate. You know, did that word come in the form of a letter, or did a messenger come from her and explain the matter to Pilate? You see, we don't know, but the word that came to him is while he was sitting on the judgment seat, that is, in the midst of the proceedings. I imagine a servant came forward, and he comes in, and Pilate's doing business, but he's made aware that he wants to stop Pilate from doing what he's doing because there's something very important he must hear. You know, those who read this today, I mean, we might be tempted to protest. I mean, how can a dream be so important that it stops Pilate from his activities? But the Romans were an interesting people, and for them, as well as for the Greeks, the matter of dreams and omens often thought to have come directly from the gods, well, those were matters of great importance. So, for instance, Roman generals going to war would consult everything from omens to dreams to cutting up animals and divining their liver to decide their strategy. I know for us that seems almost incomprehensible. I mean, how can you be a leader if you're so superstitious and pay attention to such things? But let's ignore omens and livers, shall we? Let's concentrate on the matter at hand, which is the matter of a dream. We'll remember from our Bible that during the time of Joseph that Pharaoh had a dream, and he was deeply unsettled. He wasn't willing to ignore it. And as this matter gets resolved, and as Joseph is found as the only man that can interpret the meaning of his dream, Pharaoh then finds out that there are seven years of abundance coming, followed by seven years of a very severe drought. If steps are not taken, all of Egypt will be in peril. Now, no one in that day would have thought that to be unusual, that the divine would communicate with people through dreams. Take another example. Daniel is able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and because of that, just like Joseph before him, Daniel is elevated to a leading position in the land. Well, we might say, Such is the nature of the pre-scientific mind. I mean, people were superstitious back then. But consider that on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes from the prophecy of Joel that in the final days, old men would dream dreams. That means they would dream dreams that had meaning, and that meaning would have to be discerned. Now, in our day, most modern Westerners believe that dreams are a product of the subconscious mind. I mean, we have that from Sigmund Freud. And because of that, Westerners tend to ignore their dreams. Let me give you an assignment. Find a good concordance and look up every indication in the Bible that deals with dreams. And I'm telling you, you might just change your mind about the meaning of dreams. And all that to say that when Pilate, who must have respected his wife, hears that she wishes to communicate a dream she has had, he stops the hearing and he wants to hear it. Is there a message from the divine? And what is that message? Well, he is to have nothing to do with the death of that righteous man. Indeed, she says, she suffered much because of what she's seen in the dream. I think she was tormented and believed something significant was at stake here. What do we make of that? Is it good advice? Well, I suppose it has everything to do with how we interpret the phrase, have nothing to do with. I mean, it might mean, make sure that this man is not condemned, have nothing to do with condemning him. I think Pilate takes it to mean avoid responsibility for this man's death. Make sure that when he dies, someone else is implicated. And it's the second interpretation that Pilate seems to take. He will make the Jewish people choose. And by this time, the elders of Israel have been very busy. 
Matthew doesn't tell us what they told the crowd. I mean, did they threaten them in some fashion? Did they lie to them? Did they attempt to build their case that Jesus was always a fraud, that he was going to bring the Romans down on their heads and that their wives and children would be butchered because of their listening to this man, Jesus? Well, possibly. But whatever they said, by the time they were done, they had won the crowd. And by the time Pilate is ready for the question, do you want Jesus or Barabbas? The crowd's already decided. They will choose the man guilty of notorious crimes. John 18.40 says that he was a robber. Mark 15.7, as well as Luke 23, tells us he was also a murderer. He may have well belonged to some guerrilla bands that were notorious, who victimized people in the upper class, and it might have been for political reasons and for hatred of the upper classes that he was a popular man among them. Whatever the reasons, nonetheless, that's what the people choose. They see Jesus and Barabbas, and they cry out, we want Barabbas. Now, we also know the reasons they chose him. They chose him because Pilate refused to be just. And Pilate gave them a choice they ought not to have had. They chose him because they were willing to listen to the voice of the religious leaders rather than listening to the voice of God and asking whether God had sent his son. And they chose Barabbas because anyone who terrorizes the rich was fine with them. And for all of those reasons, Jesus was condemned. And for all of those reasons, Jesus continues to be rejected by people today not on the basis of truth, but on the basis of ulterior motives. It's always been that way. Thanks for your message, John. You know, when we, when we hear this part of the story, you know, I think it's easy for us to vilify those who, who yelled for Barabbas' release. But do you think we're honest if we think we wouldn't have done the very same thing? Well, let me try to be honest and uh, simply say I think I would have done exactly what they did. Um, the reality is that, um, you know, what Jesus was demanding, that we bow our knee and call him Savior, Lord, and God, um, I, I think it's just, uh, it opposes everything about our own self-will. Outside of the Holy Spirit's work in our conversion, we would have all yelled for Barabbas. And so rather than condemning the Jews, I would simply say, recognize that the Jews are to be condemned, but they are simply representatives of the rest of us. We would have all done the same, and we ought to see that in our own attitudes and in what's in our own hearts, and we ought to come in repentance before God, for in this story, we do actually see ourselves. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. The Easter season is upon us. It's a time we celebrate and honor the victory of our Savior. Sin was defeated and forgiveness won. Because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, we can now look beyond this world to the eternal, heavenly relationship that awaits with the Creator. To help you commemorate and meditate on this precious act of love, Back to the Bible Canada is offering two Easter-themed programs this season. Visit our YouTube channel and check out Dr. John's nine-message series, Journey to the Cross. And be sure to also tune in to his four-week audio series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, based on the book of Matthew. 
This series, along with many others from years past, can also be found at backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, perhaps consider giving a gift to sustain the creation of future Bible teaching resources from Back to the Bible Canada.